I think GraphQL API is quite helpful if you have um, this fast evolving um, uh, data model which you would like to expose to specific clients and you would like to provide a lot of flexibility for those clients. Today, I talked to Oleg Ilyanko about GraphQL and his GraphQL implementation, Sangria. Welcome to the podcast. It's uh, nice to meet you. Uh, thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Um, so a couple, uh, actually about a month ago, I, I, was, I was working on um, this API and I had to add some new endpoints to it because um, they're building this new React client and uh, they just wanted some new endpoints that return slightly different data. And, and as I started to dig into this, this uh, what seemed like a small thing, um, I kind of came to the realization that the API design is, is maybe a lot more complicated than, than I thought. And uh, at this time, I started to look into uh, GraphQL and then I came across uh, Sangria, which, which you made, which is a GraphQL uh, tool for Scala. So I thought maybe we could start with maybe talking about some of these API difficulties and then transition into talking about GraphQL and, and then finally your product. The The problem I had, because I think it's an interesting way to, to illustrate where GraphQL um, could be a solution, maybe. So there was a user uh, endpoint and it returns like, you know, some sort of user object and um, it's being used by, by certain clients and, and returns certain you know, just basic user information. Now we have an, an, a new client who'd like to call this API and um, either they have to, either they have to make extra requests because all the information isn't there or I need to add more information to this call. Um, so how would I solve this problem, say, without using GraphQL? Uh, so, Without using GraphQL, um, um, there are different approaches to this. Uh, in in many cases, if you just have one REST API, you would uh, probably just introduce this change in the backend and try to think about how how it will look like for all existing clients who mm -hmm. maybe not necessarily need this information. Um, another approach you can uh, go is uh, to build uh, a dedicated endpoint uh, specifically for this particular client. Uh, it is especially important for mobile applications where the, they are very sensitive to a uh, type of data that is returned to them and amount of data. Mm -hmm. um, with GraphQL, it's uh, a little bit more flexible because um, every single client always needs to provide information about what kind of data it needs in form of GraphQL query. Uh, so this GraphQL query, it's kind of, you can think of it as a JSON, but uh, if you skip the values, if you just have the names of the fields, the structure, and you send it to the, uh, the client, send it to the server, and then server uh, fulfills kind of those requirements. It, it provides uh, the missing part, the value part. So the shape of response that client gets back is is the same as um, uh the initial query, uh, with exception that it has no values. Uh, so, for example, if I was using GraphQL rather than building two endpoints, the the one client could just specify that they actually want um, 
whatever the organization name as as a part of the request and they would get that back where the other client could you know not include that and then they wouldn't receive that exactly so with, with graphql api you you would still need to add it as this capability to the server but it will not affect any existing clients because if client doesn't know about this new field like organization uh, it will never ask for it uh, so this means that uh, other clients wouldn't be comp- wouldn't be affected by this change uh, the new clients now can ask for this field um, and to uh, as a side effect of this, um, it makes it also easier to track uh, usage of API. Uh, we often talk, especially in context of mobile applications, we talk about different versions of API, about uh, maintenance of those versions. Um, because mm-hmm. uh, as soon as you deploy a mobile application, as soon as uh, it's, it went through the review process and it landed on the, um, let's say, Android or iPhone, uh, it is very hard to, to kind of make users updated. So this means you kind of need to either tolerate those older versions, uh, older clients that uh, uh, require or ask for for older versions, or uh, you you just drop support for those uh, those uh, older clients. Uh, with GraphQL, um, you no longer think in terms of the version; you think in terms of uh, data requirements. So client says, "Okay, I need an organization," and uh, it doesn't describe the version of the API; it just tells exactly which fields it needs. And this is pretty much it. Well, so what if there's a field that, for instance, you know, in a, in a traditional setup, I was returning some field as part of V1 API, and then in the V2, I'm I'm no longer returning that. How would I handle that in GraphQL? Uh, what is often done, and I doing, for example, it was our API. Um, so the GraphQL itself um, has, um, first it has a query language, which uh, you normally use. So you say, okay, give me a user with a name, uh, uh, with a name and uh, organization. Um, in this case, you, you will get a user back. But uh, what GraphQL also has in addition to it is a type system. So at the same time as you ask about the user, you can also ask an introspection API to give you information about the structure of the user type. So this means user type and uh, um, uh, scalar types like int and string, they're all part of the type system, which is exposed together with the actual data with the, in the actual API. Um, and this metadata includes things like uh, documentation. So every single field and type has a description and um, every field has a duplication. Uh, so the field called, I think it's called duplicated and duplication reason. So this means when you would like to remove, for example, this organization in future, like the organization field, you would first duplicate it. Uh, mm-hmm. This information is uh, already understood and um, used by different clients, like, for example, this graphical, which is uh, kind of in-browser IDE to, to write your queries. It will automatically remove those fields. It will not show it to users, so you can still use those fields, but they would be explicitly marked as duplicated and not shown to users who don't know about them. Mm. Um, given this, um, and um, given that server always knows um, what uh, clients uses, uh, we can track the usage of particular fields. Like, for example, uh, in our case, we have um, uh, all our metrics go to the uh, to the InfluxDB and um, 
uh, then presented in uh, Grafana. And we actually built a dashboard that shows us uh, which fields are in use and which, especially which duplicated fields are still in use. So we know precisely when particular field is no longer used by different clients. We can define thresholds. We can define the time frame for how long do we wait um, until we drop this field. But when we drop this field, we have a lot of confidence that uh, this field is not used by any client. That That is very cool. Because otherwise you end up with all these endpoints that, that you're not sure they're being used. I mean, I guess you could do this monitoring, you know, if you just had a V1 endpoint as well. Um, uh, Surely. <clears throat> um, one of the issues uh, I have with uh, this global API version is that it is uh, very imprecise. So you kind of declare the uh, version one of the whole API, uh, of your whole API. And um, sometimes you just want to change one field or want to remove one field. <laughs> so it is you need to be very cautious about um, introducing new changes or coordinating those changes. And uh, because you can't maintain a lot of versions, so you kind of maybe you do one version in six months, once in six months, uh, or something like this. Um, uh, you can also be more precise about it. So we, we try to be more precise in our REST API. So we try to, to uh, like we also have a, a REST API, and we try to avoid version as much as possible just because of maintenance and we're not a big team. Um, what we did, we actually introduced a, a, a header. So as soon as we, as a um, uh, user, uh, or client sends to us uh, something that is duplicated, like uh, a duplicated query parameter. Um, we add this additional header. I think it's called X duplicated or something like this. And uh, this uh, header tells it, okay, you're using this uh, query parameter, but uh, it's no longer supported or it will be dropped in future. And the same we do to our responses. But it's much, much harder with responses because we always need to send this information whether client actually needs this field or not because we don't just simply don't know. Mm-hmm. And how how do you send it? Like it's just included in the response? Exactly. So it's a response header uh, and it just contains a list of all things uh, that they duplicated. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I I agree with you about the global versioning, right? Um, because say you want to you want to just make one change to the API, and now you need to you know have a whole new version, and it, it does discourage uh, like innovation on the API, right? It keeps it very static. Where I suppose with GraphQL, if you're just adding a new field to an existing thing, clients who um, a clients who aren't using that, it does doesn't matter, like. They won't be asking for it. They won't get it back. Exactly. So you mentioned um, you mentioned overfetching. So to my understanding, overfetching is like just there's more data returned than the than the client actually needs. Yes. One one way I've seen this uh, dealt with in just a a non GraphQL API is that you actually specify the fields. Like the client will just give you a list of, hey, get me this user ID seven, and I want name and uh, I don't know some other field. What yes, do you think in, of that? Uh, indeed, I I saw uh, I saw those different approaches to the of doing this. Uh, in fact, our, our SAPA includes uh, this type of inf- information as well. Uh, we we don't have um, a black or white list of fields, but we have a field expansion, so you can kind of expand on references. 
Um, I also saw, for example, JSON API. So JSON API is a, a kind of specification for REST API where, where it includes a lot of concepts like pagination, uh, like a field uh, black and white listing, and, and so on. So it has a structure, it has um, a semantic in it. Um, the, one of the problems is that often um, there's no single way of doing this. Uh, so as far as I saw in my personal experience, different API implemented in different ways, uh, which are not always compatible with each other. So every single time you see a new API, new REST API, you need to learn um, the concepts uh, that this API uses, uh, the way they uh, allow you to specify the black and uh, white, uh, let you do the black and white listing of fields. In particular, it becomes more complicated when we are talking about nested structures. Like, for example, if you have uh, a list, uh, a user with a list of repositories, uh, in each repository you have a list of uh, projects. Uh, or a list of com commits, uh, if you're talking about, for example, GitHub API. Like in this case, you need a special language to express yourself. You need to say something like JS, um, like um, a JSON pass, uh, where you say, okay, I would like inside of um, a user, I, inside of the list of repositories, I would like to uh, select a particular field. Um, and GraphQL provides an advantage because it is a specification which describes precisely those concepts. It allows you to uh, to do it in a standard, uh, well-specified way. And uh, uh, all, all GraphQL API uh, work in exactly the same way. So they implement exactly the same semantic, which means you can build very powerful tools, um, especially considering that GraphQL API also has a full introspection exposed. So you not only know that this is GraphQL API and it follows particular semantic, you can also discover everything there is to know about this API, including documentation. So in that way, you know, you start with this idea of where you want to make your API better for each client. So you add these fields, like expand this field, don't include this field. Um, but a solution to this problem already exists, which is GraphQL. Like Facebook's already gone through this and, and came up with this protocol for deciding what to return in a uniform way. Exactly. And um, another important aspect, um, actually Facebook, when Facebook started uh, working on GraphQL, uh, they started around 2012. Um, and uh, funny enough, they actually started use it in context of mobile applications, even though now if you look at GraphQL and uh, the whole ecosystem, it is often used uh, in context of web applications um, uh, together with uh, React, uh, with AngularJS 2 with uh, Vue.js and so on. Uh, but in fact, uh, the origins of GraphQL come from mobile space, from uh, iOS and Android applications. Um, actually, at Facebook, they started to use REST API, so they tried to use it, but um, unfortunately, it was uh, it was not very well a good fit for mobile uh, as a mobile API. And uh, another thing is uh, also conceptually, it was um, a different approach. Uh, because uh, in in most of the cases when we do the data modeling, just think about uh, um, uh, Scala code. In Scala, we define all those concepts like a user, an organization, um, mm -hmm. a repository, and, and so on. All those things are connected and somehow related to each other. So we define the data model in terms of uh, types and relationships. Uh, then when we go to define REST API, we suddenly start to think about... Um, resources, flat resources that um, somehow encapsulate a particular part of uh, API. 
but they uh, don't have a lot of notion of relationships between data, especially deep and more complicated relationships. And uh, this is where GraphQL uh, helps a lot because it allows you not only to expose the data itself, but also those uh, relationships between data. So you can directly ask uh, for uh, for organizations uh, of a user at the same time, and it's uh, just a uh, just normal field. So you you're not longer working with uh, those references. Um, so the conceptual model is a graph with with GraphQL. So it's about types and relationships instead of tables and uh, forum keys, for example, or uh, resources and uh, links. And th this is a graph in like the computer science sense of like nodes that you can follow to another node with like vertices. Exactly. Conceptually, on, on the server, you can think of uh, the whole um, GraphQL um, API, the data inside of it as, as a graph. But when you query it, you need to start somewhere, and this is kind of an entry point. Um, uh, with with uh, GraphQL, you normally start with a query type, um, and then you what you actually get back is a tree. So you you get a tree of uh, traversal, so to say, of this um, data because uh, often graph graphs have uh, loops and um, um, uh, recursive data structures. So when you, as a client, you ask for particular data, you don't get the graph shape, but you get the tree shape um, of, of the data, the kind of a projection of, of the graph. Yeah, because you could say, for instance, um, like, get me these four users and these users' organizations and the organizations' repositories or something, right? So... Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, and um, you not only can ask for, uh, let's say, a list of organization of, of, the, of the of user, you can also ask uh, for a particular page, like you can do a pagination inside of, um, inside of the data structures. Because with Graph, uh, the only thing that GraphQL defines are the uh, fields, maybe a nested selection of fields, and uh, every single field can have uh, arguments. And this is how you do pagination and sorting and filtering. Um, so you can have, for example, a list of users that are like top 10 users. And then inside of a user type or inside of a user object, you can ask for a list of organizations, uh, but uh, not all of them. Only, uh, let's say, uh, last three organizations that user had activity in. Makes sense. Um so I think I kind of understand the motivating examples for GraphQL. So what what is GraphQL? It's not it's not a library. It's it's not an implementation. Um what is it? Exactly. So GraphQL is a, a query language for for an API. Um it is it was developed by Facebook at um at, uh, so it was um uh, first developed by Facebook in 2012, uh, but in 2015 uh, it was publicly released as a specification. So this means that uh, GraphQL is uh, a specification, which you can think of it as just a PDF document that describes as a syntax, uh, semantic. So the syntax and execution semantic of, of this query language. Um, and in my opinion, this is an important point because this uh, was a key factor to uh 
build uh, to for, for this whole uh, GraphQL ecosystem to emerge. Uh, if you look now, uh, GraphQL specification is implemented for more than 15 different programming languages, including Scala, Vsynclair, and uh, languages like Ruby and JavaScript, Python, Elixir, uh, Erlang, and so on. So all major programming languages have an implementation. And uh, I think uh, this success is... Uh, uh, so the specification was uh, a key to for the success. Um, um, so yes, uh, GraphQL specification. We have uh, different implementations for uh, of the specification to help people build GraphQL servers. There is also a reference implementation uh, written in JavaScript, which is maintained by Facebook. Like f- from the sounds of it, on the outside being a query language. Like it, it sounds like somehow, um, it's it's a database front end. Is it is it a database front end? Um, it is often uh, misrepresented or uh, perceived as uh, uh, similar to to SQL. So many people when they hear about GraphQL, they think about SQL or this kind of uh, more complicated, uh, more complex. Uh, ec- and very expressive language, uh, but uh, the the, met, uh, the fact is that GraphQL is not uh, quite similar to SQL. It's quite different. It's more similar to REST, REST API than than SQL because with GraphQL, uh, whatever you allow your client to ask for, uh, everything is, needs to be explicitly specified. This means every single time you, for example, say you you provide a list of organizations. Uh, it is explicitly specified that user can have has a field, uh, and this field is called organizations. And um, you have um, you can ask uh, it on a user, but maybe not in any different other way. Um, also, if you would like to sort this uh, this list of uh, organizations in particular way, you need to explicitly define an argument for this field, um, and so that user can specify a limited subset of uh, sort criteria. But all of this is done by server developer, and they need to explicitly allow uh, this, this field to be uh, to be available on on a user type. Uh, otherwise, GraphQL doesn't have uh, any generic type of um, aggregation like uh, like SQL does. So this means you can uh, kind of anticipate what client would be able to ask, and you can optimize, uh, up, like, you, you, you can be sure that everything you expose via GraphQL API is always optimized and uh, in some way. So GraphQL, you know, it, it's a query language, but the the person on the server is responsible for writing the, the evaluation of this query. Yes, exactly. Um, so um, another thing I haven't mentioned yet is um, GraphQL is uh, completely agnostic of uh, uh, the protocol, like it can be HTTP, it can be also TCP, just a simple raw TCP connection. Uh, and it also um, doesn't care about the actual data format. So it can be a JSON, it can be an XML, it can be a, a binary data product. Uh, like, for example, I used uh, GraphQL with um, a message pack and uh, Amazon Ion formats, which are binary, uh, binary data formats. Um, and um, on when you implement a GraphQL API, uh, you for every single field you need to specify a function, and this is uh, your function. So it's all up to you how and what you do uh, uh, if particular field is requested. 
of course, there is a lot of tools that help you build those resolve functions. There are uh, things like macros that will help you to derive the structure and implementation based on the case classes. But in some cases, you actually need to go to the database and fetch a uh, data, the data. Uh, but uh, since it's just a normal function, you can do it. Uh, you, you you need to do it yourself. So this means uh, GraphQL also have no notion about any kind of data storage. Um, and it's all up to you how you implement it. Uh, as a nice side effect of this uh, is that you can query not only a single data store, but uh, multiple of, uh, multiple data store, uh, the data store uh, or databases at once. For example, in our API, we use uh, MongoDB and Elasticsearch, and uh, in a single GraphQL query can can be fulfilled using data from uh, loaded from MongoDB and Elasticsearch, uh, and I think even a part of it can be can come from some internal REST API. Yeah, or you could have, you know, if you had some sort of microservice architecture, there's like a whole bunch of various services and your API endpoint is kind of gathering those up to, to fulfill the, the request. Yeah. So one of these tools um, for implementing the server side of GraphQL requests is, is Sangria, which you created. So what, what led you to create this? Uh, yes, exactly. So Sangria is a, a Scala GraphQL implementation that helps you to build the server uh, you know, and expose a GraphQL API. And it provides a lot of tools um, to help you work with GraphQL queries to, to uh, help you validate and uh, maybe build tools on top of it. Um, for me, motivation was uh, a lot of problems I personally faced with REST API. I, I, I was building REST API for a long time. And the first time I heard about uh, GraphQL, I, I saw how it works and um, how, how it feels. Uh, I got immediately excited about this technology, even before it was publicly released. Uh, as soon as it's released uh, in 2015, um, yeah, I think it was July 2015, it was announced at uh, React Europe. Uh, I was there uh, and I, I was um, excited about um, the, uh, the the specification and um, I immediately started working on Scala implementation because, of course, not, none was available for, for Scala. And it was uh, a huge help that uh, GraphQL has uh, not only specification, but also a reference implementation. Um, I am not a big um, JavaScript developer, so I'm not a very good JavaScript developer, uh, and it is written in JavaScript. But it is uh, very helpful if you're trying to implement something, uh, some specification uh, in different language. Because uh, if there's some ambiguity, if something is not quite clear, uh, based on the specification text, you can always go and look in the algorithms. Uh, you can look in specific implementation. You can test it out um, in the actual thing and uh, just implement the semantic. So this was a huge help. And um, it took, I think, uh, about a month. And after months, it was uh, kind of the first feature-complete uh, implementation of GraphQL uh, library. That How did you find combining Scala with GraphQL um do the technologies seem to fit well together or, or not? I think it fits quite well. Uh, what always concerned me um, is that, uh, you know, we often define case classes, we define and think through our data model. We um, define very um, uh, precise relationships between all our types. Um, 
and uh, to, to, to help us reason about our type system, to, to help us reason about an application. But then as soon as we hit uh, and start to implement REST API, suddenly we throw away all of these type safety, all of this data model, and uh, what we expose is just a JSON blobs. So you, 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 we just expose endpoints and JSON blobs. Um, some people do expose things like OpenAPI, like the schema, but those schemas are often maintained separately, so they often are out of date and uh, maybe not as uh, precise as uh, one would wish for. Uh, and uh, for me, it was a, uh, personally a huge selling point of GraphQL that it has a type system. So I can it, it's not as uh, powerful as Scala type system, uh, but I think uh, it's also not a good idea to expose something like Scala type system through API. So it needs to be something more simple and something that is more usable by many different other clients. Like in many, many scenarios, um, companies actually implement uh, the server side in GraphQL uh, in, in Scala with um, mm -hmm. And uh, on the client side, they have the whole team of um, front-end developers who build React applications, who build React native applications, and maybe iOS, and, and so on. So it is important that those people uh, can take advantage of this uh, information uh, about the type system, and including all of the tooling that they use. And like the open API standard, that's uh, like a swagger. It makes like the swagger document, right? And it, exactly. Yeah. It does. It does tell you the the types and how you would call things and stuff. But it, but it's not enforced. Like there's nothing to say that it's it's correct. And it, it's also completely, as you were saying, like outside of your API. Like it's just like I maintain some giant YAML document that that produces that. And yeah, it can lag. So how do how do types work in GraphQL? How do I get the type of a of a certain call I'd like to make? Yeah, so uh, it's actually the API is a, a of introspection is not different from anything else. Uh, you just make a normal GraphQL request. You just say underscore underscore schema, and this field is always available on all GraphQL APIs, and you get the full introspection um, of um, the type system. It includes things like um, which types are available, uh, like user or profile or maybe organization, uh, which fields those uh, types have. Uh, you have information about interfaces and union types, about scalar types like int and string, uh, long and, and so on. Uh, then you also have enum values or enum types and enum values. Um, and um, I think uh, the last thing um, you also have um, input types. So there's a difference between output and input types. Uh, and input types can be provided. It's, it's a complex type, so it's kind of an object. You can think of it as a JavaScript object or JSON object, mm -hmm. um, but it can be provided as an argument. For like updating uh, something or, or adding something. Exactly. So GraphQL has, uh, so I think it's also an important point that GraphQL is not read-only, not only Read on that, but it, it also has a mutation part and subscriptions. Uh, so when you say just uh, a query, uh, it, it means you, you just want to read the data. So in this case, you are working with output types. Um, but you can also say uh, a mutation. So you can send a mutation query, which looks very, very similar. Um, it's just a list of fields uh, which have arguments, uh, but they intended as the mutations uh, for your uh, for your data. So you can uh, have things like uh, add new product, add, uh, create a user, uh, change username, uh, and, and so on. So those kind of fields. 
So does that mean I can send an update that affects like a whole graph, like several objects that could be in several data stores? It's possible. Uh, because as far as GraphQL is concerned, it doesn't know anything about uh, the business logic of your application. It doesn't try to prescribe a specific way uh, of modeling the data. It is It just provides tools to model data and to describe this uh, structure via the type system. So in this case, um, you just define a field, which is called, for example, uh, uh, subscribe user. And on the server side, you provide a function, uh, a resolver. Mm -hmm. It's often called a resolve function, uh, where it's all up to you what you would like to do, uh, which data store, uh, data stores you would like to, uh, to talk to, you know, to subscribe a user. It, it might be just single data store. It can be also, for example, you can communicate to MailChimp API and you can uh, create a user and subscribe user to a particular mailing list. Yeah, and th this is the beauty of it, of it just being a protocol, right? Is that the details behind it could, can vary. Yeah, exactly. I think this is a very powerful concept. For example, uh, Twitter uses uh, GraphQL, so they started to use GraphQL a while back. Uh, and I think this uh, demonstrates the power of this um, kind of independence of the transport and independence of uh, the data format, because you can... On the surface, you can uh, have HTTP API that returns JSON, mm -hmm. but then internally you can use the same query and give it or orchestrate its execution across multiple different microservices, which also talk GraphQL, but they use maybe a TCP protocol, mm. something like Protobuf or uh, Swift, um, and um, use a more efficient uh, binary data format. And is Twitter using Sangria to do this? Uh, yes, yes, they use Sangria. Yeah. There's actually a, a very uh, interesting talk um, at uh, uh, from GraphQL Summit 2017. I think it was in October or November. And uh, the last talk is uh, from Twitter. And they talked about how they implemented subscriptions uh, with uh, GraphQL. Uh, uh, so, so GraphQL subscriptions uh, with Sangria. Yeah. That's awesome. I'll have to check it out. W what were your thoughts when you uh, when you found out this library uh, you built was being used by Twitter? Uh, it's definitely very, uh, I was very excited and uh, maybe a little bit, of, a little bit scared um, because you know <laughs> um, uh, you, you never know like uh, maybe something is wrong and uh, something uh, will cause a disaster but um, it was a while now and we actually had uh, some some communication and uh, they actually contributed some some of the improvements uh, to, to, to the library uh, actually the, the there's a lot of companies that use now GraphQL, and uh, a lot of them also use Sangria. And uh, it's, uh, I think it's, um, I don't know, I'm very happy about it, and um, I, I, I think it uh, helps to improve the library because uh, all those companies use Sangria, and uh, it helps they, they contribute back, they contribute back um, not only a code but also the feedback and maybe some problems when something goes wrong or maybe there's some performance issues and uh, we can figure it out, we can discuss it. Uh, so this helps a lot. Yeah, I can I can understand why you'd be a little fearful at first, but uh, at this point, if Sangri is being used by a number of big companies, including Twitter, like the the number of GraphQL, you know, requests that it's served. Like it must be pretty battle hardened at this point. Uh, I guess so. Uh, as far as I remember, last time 
as I tweeted about it, uh, it was like, uh, I think it was about 2 billion uh, requests per day at the moment. <laughs> wow. Uh, which is uh, not, uh, uh, I mean, on a Twitter scale, it's not that big, uh, but uh, in terms of uh, this new technology or relatively new technology, it is uh, quite an amazing thing to, to, to see. Uh, so yes, uh, it's definitely a good proof that uh, this works and it scales. And maybe there are some issues along the way, but I'm pretty sure that there's nothing that we cannot solve or address in some way. Yeah, wow, that's some big numbers. I mean, at least from my perspective. So who who else? Are there other exciting companies using Sangria? Uh, definitely. So uh, I know uh, I know of Twitter and uh, New York Times. They also use Sangria. Ah. Um, uh, Coursera. Uh, so the Coursera, they, they provide this, um, educational videos. So mm-hmm. they have also courses about the functional program with Martin Dasky and uh, Interesting. So, um, if I were to use Sangria and, um, like getting into the details, if I have my user case class and I want to return that as part of my GraphQL, uh, request, like what do I have to do? Um, so if you just have a case class, for example, and you have a way to get this case class from some, some place like database, Mm -hmm. uh, what you need to do is to define an object type. Um, so the object type is kind of a meta information about your type. Uh, it contains a description, the name Mm -hmm. and a list of fields. And every field has the name and description and resolve function. Um, so as soon as you have this type, so it's kind of you define additional meta information for the, you kind of describe the user type in more detail, then you can create the schema. So it's just a simple, a simple case class. Um, and you can execute queries against this schema, against this type. So it's actually very little work you need to do in order to expose particular type via Kafka. Um, so if I have, yeah. I have a service, whatever it's called, get user, and it takes like a, a GUID and it returns this user case class. So then I write an object type, which basically contains the documentation for my user object, like what what types the fields are. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It defines the name of the fields, the documentation, possibly, and um, the type of this um, of, of this field. Um, and you also need to define this result function, which uh, kind of provides information, given a user case class, how do I get a field uh, like name, for example? So just a simple simple function. Uh, what you can also do, you can use a, a macro, like uh, Sangria provides a, a derivation macro. So they, they, uh, it's a macro that uh, looks at the structure of the case class or any class and uh, generates this uh, meta information for you. So you just make a simple, uh, you, you just derive in the structure from a case class and expose, expose it via Kafka API. Because like in most of the cases, I'm just returning this object. Uh, basically in most of the cases, it's just a straight translation from like, I have this object and now I want to make this object type that's just describes its fields with some description. So. I can I can generate that with a macro. Exactly. But if I really want to, because there's the cases I'm thinking where it's like, I don't want to return uh, this particular value. Um, is that when I would use the more, um, is that when I would skip the macro? Uh, 
Um, in fact, you can go pretty far with macro because um, I personally believe that um, macro uh, or macro-based derivation shouldn't be uh, all or nothing story. So um, in many cases, when I see a macro, it's kind of all or nothing. Like if macro does what you like, uh, you can just use it. If you do want to do some small customizations to the result of this macro, you kind of need to go in this more explicit style. Um, this is not the case with Sankaya uh, because you can, uh, for example... Uh, derive the structure of a case class, but you can still provide a description for fields, or you can exclude or include particular fields. You can even re replace field or add new fields, um, but still derive the structure, the base structure from based on the case class. And it's all type safe because a macro just executes at compile time. So this means if you, for example, exclude field that doesn't exist, it would be a compilation error. Mm. Uh, but if you have something completely custom, something uh, completely new that doesn't have a kind of um, a case class to it, in this case, yeah, you can use explicit style and uh, it's um, not that much well applied, but you can be very explicit. Uh, actually, some people do prefer to use explicit style because like if, uh, one of the big reasons is um, because you often want to keep your API data model or API type system uh, separate mm -hmm. from your internal data model. Uh, your internal data model represents how you kind of implement your business logic, but your, what the things you expose, uh, this is what you would like your users to see. Yeah, because I, I suppose if, if I have this user object and I just use a macro to expose it and then somebody else adds a new field to the user object, um, like they might not actually realize that they're exposing that via the API if it's not explicit. Yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah, exactly. So you, I think you slightly touched on this, but if I want to return something in my user object that it, that is not, in fact, a field that, that is like a function, like say my my say I have employee salary, which is actually a calculation based on some other properties, but I don't, I don't want to have that calculation have to be redone on the client. I'd, I'd rather return it. How would I expose that? Exactly. So, uh, for example, if you're using macro, you say drive object type user, and then um, as an argument, you provide to it a kind of a setting. This is also, it's just a list of settings. Uh, they are analyzed at compile time. And there you can say something like add a new field. And from this point on, just, just for this field, you do in, you define this field explicitly, which means you can provide name, description, and resolve function. And inside of this resolve function, you can um, do whatever you want. You can uh, communicate, for example, to external service and uh, fetch this data. Uh, from somewhere else, or maybe from some existing RESTful API. And this would be kind of the same way I would I would use it to follow references? Like if I want to say that there's uh, something hanging off my user that is organization name, however, I actually have to go out and perform a query um, to get that on the back end, would I expose it the same way? So your uh, everything of field... Uh, is just a function. So most of the functions will just return um, a data, already loaded data. But some functions are, uh, will need to load data from some data store. In particular, um, uh, there's a root uh, type 
in GraphQL, a root query type. This is a kind of your entry point. This, those fields are available um, for you when you just type, okay, open curly braces, and then you start to type your fields. This is a query type. Uh, so those are top-level fields that you expose to, to the client. And in, for most of those types, you, you will need to go to the database or some kind of data storage uh, to load the data, like load the user case class, and, and mm-hmm. then uh, the user type uh, will uh, work with those fields, but those fields are already loaded. And the same the same way it works for references, uh, it is recursive in the sense so uh, on a user you can have field organizations, and those organizations can, uh, the, the field itself can go to the database and fetch a list of organizations uh, for this user and then give it back. Uh, uh, I think one one of the problems that uh, many people ask after after introduction of those kind of things is that uh, well you will end up with this n plus one problem where uh, you you kind of load uh, the same thing over and over again yeah yeah or you 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 have a lot of like this n plus one queries to the database and um, with some uh, there is a notion of deferred value resolution so. What you can do, instead of loading an organization, you can uh, give it, uh, so you can return a deferred value. Uh, so uh, this is kind of, this says that, okay, in this place, I would like to load an organization. What execution uh, engine does, it collects all of those deferred values and at the right moment, when there's nothing more to collect, it uh, it calls another function, and this function just give, uh, gets a list of those deferred values as an argument, and can very very efficiently load um, all this data at once. Uh, so at the end of the day, you will will not end up with a uh, n plus one problem. You you can load all this data at once uh, in single place. Yeah, I think this is a really cool feature. So. Um... A person makes a request and they they get back all the users with the first name Bob, but they also want to include with that uh, Bob's organization. So if 10 records come back, in theory, that's got to make 10 requests out to organizations. But I I believe what you can do in Sangria is that you get back all these IDs, um, all the organization IDs and feed them as a list into some request that's like, get me all these organizations and then it it kind of builds it builds the graph back for you, right? So you you end up with two requests instead of eleven. Exactly. So if you if you're familiar with libraries like a fetch, uh, I think from uh, uh, forty seven decades uh, or um, a clump, um, this is a very very similar concept. Uh, so you kind of give back IDs and you say, okay, um, eventually use this ID to load this data. But you do it in bulk so, or in, in batch. Uh, and uh, a lot of people actually use it. They either do this batch uh, SQL query or they maybe have a REST API that accepts a list of IDs and gives back just a list of uh, objects back, not JSON objects. And uh, yeah, exactly. So, so you can do it all at once. Uh, and uh, in terms of the structure, so at the end of the day, you, your execution can branch, but uh, you will end up in many cases um, if you have kind of the same type of data uh, with a one query per nesting level. So if, if you have deeply nested query, so you say you ask for a user and then organization of a user and then users of this organization, you will end up with at most three, uh, three uh, 
SQL queries or maybe HTTP requests to, to internal uh, microservices. And as as a as an implementer, it just means I just have to write the the service that can get a user, service that can get a list of users, and then you know a service that can get an organization by ID and a service that can get organizations like in bulk by a list of IDs, right? Exactly. And then Sangria is building this data model. It, it sort of it seems like effectively you're doing a SQL join, but you're doing it in memory. Um, using maps, is that? Uh, yeah, it's kind of similar. In fact, uh, so um, there are different approaches to this. And uh, in many cases, it's actually not very efficient to, to make those giant SQL queries where you have uh, tens, um, so a lot of joins. It is quite inefficient. Mm-hmm. So what people often do, they um, uh, kind of separate um, this big SQL query in uh, multiple uh, smaller queries that uh, work in bulk. So, for example, you can uh, ask for a user and you load user information, and then a user has a list of organizations. And in this case, you just make, okay, give me all of those organizations by ID. Uh, and in many cases, actually, this is more efficient than make a, a huge uh, SQL query with, with uh, nested joints and so on. Makes sense. It probably in some ways can scale better because you can have a whole bunch of thing, like you can have a whole bunch of uh, GraphQL serving uh, boxes sitting out there, right? Um, yeah, exactly. It's much more flexible because uh, you are not tied to specific data storage. Because like, for example, in our case, especially if you if you are working with NoSQL databases, like in our cases, we, we work with MongoDB and uh, Elasticsearch. Part of the data is actually comes from Elasticsearch. Part of it comes from MongoDB. Part of it uh, might come from external um, or internal uh, microservice. And you need to orchestrate uh, the fulfillment of the GraphQL query across all those data storage engines. Um, uh, and in this case, it's quite flexible that you you can actually uh, separate the, the whole, uh, so or separate um, the API from the data storage. Gives a little give there. You could move things from one data store to another, and it wouldn't even matter. Well, it would matter, but not as much. Do you think there's cases where where GraphQL isn't an appropriate solution for an API? Um, I, I I think so. So uh, I think GraphQL API is quite helpful if you have um, this fast evolving. Um, uh, data model which you would like to expose to specific clients and you would like to provide a lot of flexibility for those clients. Um, but in many cases, uh, you would like, uh, in, or at least in some cases, um, you have well-established data model and you have a huge amount of clients so the, the actual storage of the data is distrib- distributed. Just think about like Wikipedia API. Like Wikipedia API doesn't change that often. It provides a lot of media. Um, it it needs to be very cacheable. Like you, it is very helpful to have a cache for, for example, JSON of particular Wikipedia article. And in this case, uh, I think REST API might fit much better because it's uh, it's so tightly coupled with the HTTP and the way HTTP works. So we can use uh, all of those reverse proxies and uh, caches along the way. And they all can understand uh, things like uh, e-tags and uh, um, the, the uh, cache headers and, and so on. Ah. Uh, so this caching part is uh, kind of... Uh, 
it's much easier with REST API because um, you kind of expose just resource and it's much easier to cache it. With GraphQL API, if you expose it via HTTP, you normally have just a single endpoint. Um, but the, what you would like to get, you specify via GraphQL query. There are ways to cache it, but it's uh, more complicated than with, um, with REST API, which is tightly coupled to, to HTTP and the way HTTP works. Because I guess there's some advantages then of of the the protocol being tied into the uh, the the transport protocol, I guess. Exactly. So there are different differently advantages uh, for this. But uh, for example, uh, clients like Apollo client, uh, uh, GraphQL clients uh, try to mitigate this problem. So for example, Apollo client has a, a, a normalized cache on the client side, so it maintains it. Um, so this is a big help if, if uh, dedication is uh, important in your application. Uh, but otherwise you don't, can't really take huge advantage of, uh, of uh, HTTP caching uh, with, with GraphQL API. So what do you find is a stumbling block for people learning about GraphQL and about Sangria? Um, maybe just a different data model. Sometimes people uh, have uh, things with REST API, you model data in very different way than with GraphQL API. I think this is, uh, this might be a big kind of um, uh, roadblock where you people try to apply the same concepts uh, like resources uh, on top of GraphQL API and they don't take advantage of a more expressive data model. Um, that GraphQL provides all the, all of those relationships uh, and connection between different parts of the of the data uh, relationships between types are maybe not modeled. If you're just thinking in terms of resources and the properties that hang off those resources, you know GraphQL actually is more about how these things relate. So you might you might miss the the way that you can model these relationships. Yeah, exactly. People don't even realize uh, that GraphQL has a very powerful type system behind it. And this uh, type system is exposed via introspection API, which is always available for all GraphQL APIs that is uh, out there. And those uh, are revelations. And I think it's a very, very powerful notion. So for me personally, this is, uh, I would say, one of the biggest features of API is that it has a type system and it has also nice qualities. And that leads to uh, discoverability as well, right? Um, so I can always, with the REST API, there there might be a, like a swagger documentation. There might be some document somewhere describing things. But if you know, if it's a GraphQL endpoint, it's always going to be self-documenting. Exactly. And you can rely on it. Uh, I think this is also important point that you can actually rely. Uh, so if you have a GraphQL endpoint, just a URL, you you know precisely how you will figure out like what types it provides, what things you can do with it, and uh, because of this, uh, we actually see a lot of tools built for GraphQL API. Like for example, there was recently a small a Scala library loads the schema from two different places, and it compares um, the the types and fields mm-hmm. between each other. So there's a helpers that in some cases that uh, and uh, it just prints uh, a list of breaking changes between those two different, uh, different uh. schemas. And this is very helpful because what you can do and what people actually do, and I, when I was talking to, to people who use it in production, uh, they uh, integrated it as a part of the CI 
or a build pipeline, and they compare schema changes uh, uh, between the staging environment and production environment. So it it's a tool that takes a GraphQL endpoint, says like, okay, get me the types. Okay, now get all the fields of the types. And then it says, okay, the last time I looked, there was this field, and now it's gone. So this is a breaking change. Exactly. That's very cool. I never thought of that. That's a neat idea. Well, um, well, like I want to be uh, considerate of your time. So uh, thank you so much for talking with me. I- I've learned a lot about GraphQL. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me.